As we go to the Lord and worship through His Word this morning, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again. And we'll be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 59 this morning. A pretty lengthy section, uh, some 25 verses or so. Because of the length, we'll just read it within the sermon. Pray with me one more time. Father, Jesus has said that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And so, Father, as we come and open up your book, as we hear your word, we pray that you would grant us life. Give us that which we need to live in this day of shelter in place. Help us to, to be nourished by what your word reveals to us. Especially, Lord, we pray that your spirit would fill us and that your spirit would be our teacher. And he would guide, he would guide us into your truths. Help us understand, convict us, Father, even, of areas in our life that are not in accordance with your word. And, Father, may we be a church that reflects more and more Jesus Christ. Cause us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another. We pray that the truths that you grant us would speak to uh, each of us exactly where we're at. Encourage the, our brothers and sisters around the world. And Lord, we pray that especially that you would cause the good news of, in, of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed to those who do not yet know him. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In addition to the gospel that bears his name, Dr. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in the first chapter of the book of Acts, it is there that the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples in Jerusalem. And he calls them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. By the way, today is Pentecost Sunday, the day that we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then after promising them the Holy Spirit, calling them to be witnesses for him around the world, then right before their eyes, he ascends to heaven. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up. And while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, which he was going, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In this word from the angels, we learn that Jesus will return. The king will come again. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ, where at that moment, all the promises of the messianic kingdom of God will be fulfilled. Ever since this day, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, the disciples of Jesus Christ throughout history, in every place, have awaited for his return just as you and, I do today, you and I do today. And in our passage this morning, Jesus calls those who are his disciples, those who would follow him, to be ready for his return. The warning that is throughout this text is that he wants you to make sure that you're ready for when he appears. Because 2,000 years have passed, there is always this increasing and ever-present danger that his people won't take the promise of his return seriously. That we're not found ready when he appears. That we start thinking that he might not return at all. The questions I would ask you to think about this morning is, do you know if you're ready for his return? How have you prepared for his coming? What are you doing to be ready? Maybe these questions you haven't even thought about. Maybe you just take them for granted. Maybe you, you haven't thought of them for a long time. Maybe you don't understand what's the, even the relevance of them. But these questions and other related questions to our readiness are answered by Jesus in today's passage. In the greater context of this passage, Jesus, in chapter 12, Jesus is preparing his disciples for inevitable opposition and persecution that will come to the followers of Jesus Christ. See, it's not going to be easy to be a follower of Christ. It's not easy to be a follower of Christ in different, throughout human history. And throughout human history, there are always events, circumstances that make it difficult 
Oftentimes it's persecution and oftentimes it's suffering. Oftentimes it's just the curse of sin upon our lives. And you and I in our days of shelter, we have our suffering for in our time. In verses chapter one, in chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, Jesus encouraged disciples to, uh, to prepare uh, for those inevitable times of suffering and persecution and opposition by fearing God and not man. And then in verse 13 through 34, Jesus warned his disciples to seek God's kingdom and not the kingdom of this world. Today, he calls his followers to be ready for his return. Because in the face of opposition and persecution and suffering, some are going to fall away. Some are going to hide their faith from others, from the public eye. But the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again is a motivation for all of us to be ready and to be found by the Lord, ready and actively serving when he comes. Even now, I just think uh, this past week, I I saw a Barna Group uh, kind of statistic that was reported that nearly 50% of all churchgoers even though the, uh, there has been availability of, of online service, uh, f- have not watched or participated in an online service. They've basically forsaken the gathering with the church, at least in this form, uh, in our virtual form. Jesus, in this uh, lengthy discourse, will use several parables meta- and metaphors to challenge us to be ready for His coming. The key word in this passage is the verb that's translated come. Come. He is coming. Someone is coming. It appears nine times in this passage. As we look, uh, just divide this passage up, it divides neatly for us into two uh, overarching points, two main points. As an outline today, we might simply look at it this way. Two occasions that call for Jesus' disciples to be ready for the return of the king. Are you ready for the return of the king? Today's passage gives you two occasions, two reasons, two motivations to become ready. In point number one, in verses 35 through 48, we learn this. Jesus teaches us to be ready for the master is coming. Be ready for the master is coming. In this section, Jesus tells a series of parables. He uses illustrations from normal life to convey some spiritual truth. And throughout these parables, a common thread of, of someone, whether a master or a thief, is coming. It's, it's repeated. And this coming of this master, or coming of this thief, this correlates with the coming of the Son of Man, which we'll see in verse 40. Each parable conveys a, a different truth to consider in view of the Messiah's future return. And so we see these three parables, three parables. We'll look at each one and find, discover what each one teaches us. In verse 35 to 38, we find the first parable. And this is called the parable of the watchful servants. The parable of the watchful servants. But what we learn in this a parable that you, that is those of you who are followers of Christ, you are his servants. You are the servants of the master who is returning. Look at verse 35 and 38. Let's read this, this text together. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Blessed are those slaves." Jesus commands in verse 35 with a command, uh, begins with a command to be ready, be dressed in readiness. Uh, the first command verse is, is the language of a servant. The words literally are, let your loins be girded <laughs> and your lamps be burning. Uh, it's kind of really what it's, it's, it's what it literally uh, says. Um, now, we don't normally talk about loins being girded today, but essentially we translate, the English translator translates, be dressed in readiness. Be dressed in such a way that you would be ready. A lot of those days they would have their clothes that would be kind of flowing robes. And so if they need to be ready and be ready to act, be active, they would gird up, they would roll up their, uh, their garments and kind of tuck them in uh, around their loin area so that they would be ready to, to take action. This parable involves a master who is away at a wedding feast. 
Now, wedding feasts in those days were, were just amazing celebrations. They would last days, even a week. A participant of the wedding feast could stay for any number of days before returning. Therefore, this particular master who is off attending a wedding feast uh, has servants who need to always be ready for when he returns. Jesus tells his listeners that they were to be like men who are waiting for their master's return. Verse 36. These men were not to be in their pajamas and sleeping in bed. They were to be dressed, alert, vigilant, watchful for the return of their master. Because it was their job, it was their responsibility as his servants to serve the master when he comes. But the amazing thing in this parable is that in verse 37, when the master returns, Jesus says, and finds his servants being on the alert instead and and, and ready to serve him, instead of waiting for them to serve him, the master is going to gird himself to serve them. So whenever the master comes, as long as they are ready, such servants, Jesus says, are going to be blessed. The master is going to be so pleased with them that he's going to bless them. He's going to allow them to enjoy the feast. He's just come back from a feast. Now it takes, now he puts on the garments of a servant, gets ready to serve, and he serves his servants. Disciples would get a, a taste of this blessing in the upper room of John 13. Many of us there are familiar with what happens at the Last Supper. In the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up and he puts on the garment of a slave. He takes off his regular, puts on the garment of a slave, and he washes the feet of his disciples. He serves them. This is the blessing of a master serving his servants. The blessing, this blessing, would ultimately be fulfilled when Christ returns and the marriage supper of the Lamb is celebrated. Until then, Christ's servants then are to be ready for his return. To be in our pajamas or have the lights off means we're asleep. Right? We'd be asleep. And we don't, we don't want to be asleep. We want to be found alert, re- clothed, ready, active. As his servants, we are to be actively waiting and serving Christ, looking to his return. Why? Because we're his servants. We're his servants. When we call Christ our Lord and our King, then that makes us his servants. We want to be, we don't no longer live for ourselves, but we live to serve Him. We look for His return. We, we want to be found serving Him and active and ready. Be ready. Jesus moves on for the imagery of a master returning to a second uh, image, a sec- which leads to a second parable in verse 39 to 40. In the second, the, verse 39 to 40, we find the parable of the unexpected thief. The unexpected thief. And in this parable, we learn this truth that you don't know when he will return. You don't know when. Verse 39 to 40, uh, pick up the text. Jesus says, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This parable involves a thief coming to break into and rob a, a homeowner's house. Now, the thing that, that helps thieves to be good at what they do is that basically you just don't know when they're coming. Uh, they're, you know, uh, they're not going to send you a, a courtesy notice or schedule an opportune time with you to break into your home. If he did, well, then you certainly wouldn't allow him to break into your home. The, th- the truth here is that's obvious truth is that thieves often come when you least expect it. As a homeowner, to guard your home, you always have to be vigilant. You don't just leave your doors unlocked. You make sure you lock your windows. You make sure that uh, you, you're, if you have an alarm system, you put your alarm system on. You're something who's always on the watch because you don't know when thieves might break in and steal. Be ready is the picture here, because you don't know when the thief is coming. And Jesus then correlates that with the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 40, you too, Christians, you too, followers of Christ, be ready, be prepared, is, is is the meaning. 
Why? Because the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is coming in an hour that you do not expect. He's going to come like a thief in the night. These words of Jesus describing his coming as a thief in the night are repeated throughout the scriptures. We read it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Paul repeats in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Listen to what Jesus himself says again in the book of Revelation. Revelation 16, verse 5. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Jesus promises he's going to come in the day, in the, in the day uh, of the Lord, in the end times. He's going to come like a thief. And blessed is the one who is alert, who stays awake, so that you're not ashamed. You're not, you found it like you're, you're not found naked. As, follower, as a follower of Christ, Jesus warns you then to be ready. Be prepared. If Jesus comes tonight, will you be ready for his appearing? Now, one might wonder why followers of Christ need to be ready. Aren't kind of think, well, if Christ comes, I'm, I know I'm already saved, and therefore I, I know that I'm not going to lose my salvation. I'm geared to, so why do I need to be ready in a sense? The next parable addresses this. In this third parable, in verses 41 to 48, we find the, the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants. And in it, we learn that you are a steward. You are a steward. Verse 41, uh, just to get a little uh, setting change here. You, uh, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Peter is curious as to whether Jesus' warnings meant just only for the disciples or for the crowds of people that were listening, the various onlookers the, uh, that were following them. It's just kind of odd that interesting that Jesus doesn't answer his question, but instead Jesus tells another parable. And in telling this parable, he, he in, in essence answers a question. That it's, yes, it is for the disciples. It's, it's for both. It's for his disciples, but it's also for the crowds who listen. It's for those of you who are Christians, yes. But it's for those of you who are not yet Christians, who are just listening in, trying to learn and understand what the Jesus is all about. Verse 42 and following, all the way to verse 48, we read this parable then. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready for it or act in accord, in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. The parable here returns to the picture of a master and his servants. Especially one particular servant in the master's household, known as the steward. Whenever the master of a house would leave on a journey, he would leave uh, his steward in charge of his household. In this particular case, the steward's primary task was to take care of the people in the household, including other servants. And Jesus begins by stating that the faithful and sensible steward, the one who is faithful in, in carrying out their task, in, in, uh, in caring for others, will be rewarded and blessed with greater responsibility. So there's a, there's a reward to those stewards that are faithful with what God has entrusted to them. But in contrast to a faithful stewards, faithful with, with the masters and trusted, there are other servants. There are three examples of unfaithful stewards. Verse, and we look at each one. In verse 45 to 46, we're told of a, of a wicked steward. 
The wicked steward capitalizes on his master being away for a while. He takes advantage of the situation. So he abuses the master's other servants. He uses them. He uh, just does what he does, whatever he wishes with his power and authority. He indulges himself. He serves himself instead of the others that are given to his charge. And the penalty for this man is that when the master comes, and with the time he doesn't know, he's going to be surprised, basically. The wicked steward is going to be punished severely. It describes in quite um, vivid terms. He's going to be cut into pieces. This is a serious judgment for those who abuse their responsibility of stewardship. Jesus' words here reveal that such a servant is really no servant at all. He's not, he is, he is going, he is in reality an unbeliever, an unfaithful steward. He merely professes to be a Christian in this sense, but he does not serve faithfully the master. Then in verse 47 to 48, we are introduced to two other unfaithful stewards. There's the lazy steward and the ignorant steward. In effect, both don't do what this, the, uh, the master wishes. But the difference is that one knows what the master's will is and the other one doesn't. But the fact is both don't do it. And one's, the first one does it because he's lazy and the second one doesn't do it because he's ignorant. The lazy steward is one who may not be as bad as the wicked steward. He doesn't abuse his fellow servants perhaps. But he simply ignores his master's will. But nevertheless, notice that Jesus says he too will be punished. Not as severely as the wicked servant but still he will have many lashes. The ignorant servant similarly also will get punished. But in contrast to the lazy steward and the wicked steward, he will be punished with fewer lashes. Some people interpret these latter two kinds of stewards, the, the lazy steward and the, and the ignorant steward, as, as believers. But the fact that they are unfaithful and that they are punished when the master returns are indicators that these two are unbelievers. There are people who profess faith in Christ, in the Master, but they do not serve and live for the Master, whether it's simply out of ignorance or whether it's simply because they're lazy. And what we see here is that just as there are uh, taught elsewhere that there are varying rewards in heaven, that you know, depending upon your works, there'll be gold, silver, precious stone, found in gold, silver, precious stones. Uh, St. Corinthians uh, chapter 3, I believe, uh, that there are going to be varying levels of punishment in the judgment in hell. Because ultimately those who love the Lord, those who know the Lord, are going to be people who keep His commands. Not perfectly, but characteristically. They'll be faithful with that which the Lord entrusts to them. They will be people who will not use their stewardship for their own self-indulgence. They're going to be servants who do not, uh, who are do, who are not lazy in the responsibility that God gives them, and, and decides to ignore it. They're not going to be people who are uh, ignorant in the sense that, that they, though they are servants and, and stewards of the Lord, they don't desire, they don't, they don't make any time or commitment or effort to find out exactly what the Lord wants them to do with the things that He's entrusted to them. When we belong to the Lord, when we are His stewards, when we recognize that we're His servants, we know that everything we have is from the Lord. And we want to be people who know and understand exactly what God wants us to do with the life and the, and the possessions that He's given to us. He's given us life, 70, 80 years, and He's given to us so many possessions and, and abilities and skills. But what do we use it for? What are you doing with your, the gifts and the abilities that God's given you? Are you being a faithful steward with them? Are you serving the Lord with them? Are you using your abilities to build up yourself, to magnify yourself, to glorify yourself, to serve your ends, to serve your pleasures, to serve in your indulgences? Are you simply just doing whatever you want, just being uh, lazy? Are you being just simply, oh, I don't really care what the Lord does. As long as I got my ticket to heaven, I'm good. You're being ignorant. All these things are really indications that you are not being a faithful steward. And the warning of Jesus is that there is going to be punishment when he returns. Be ready. Don't be found naked when he returns.
the latter part of the, this proverb just reminds us that those who are entrusted with much, those who are entrusted with greater truths, great, uh, will have a greater accountability. So those of you, because you're attending a Bible church every week, you are being entrusted with truths of God's word. You, are, you and I are held accountable. And I, as the teacher of God's word, say I'll need even greater accountability. But all of us are accountable to God even more because of that which we've been trusted to us. Let us live in a way in, in a, in a, to be faithful stewards. So the question for us as disciples of Christ is, what kind of steward are we? God has promised that His Son will return. Are you ready? Will He find you faithful? Will, you, will he, he find you actively serving Him with the gifts and resources that He has entrusted to you? Be ready. For the Master is coming. In verses 49 to 59, Jesus calls His disciples to be ready in consideration of another occasion that is closer at hand. In verses 49 to 59, it's our second point. Be ready, for the Master has come. Be ready, for the Master has come. Jesus turns here in verse 49 from His future ministry, His second coming, to His present ministry, His first coming. An understanding of his, of his present ministry, of His first coming, calls His audience, His listeners, to respond and be ready as well. And Jesus' first coming has, uh, results in basically three necessities for those who follow him. Three things that we need to be aware of that are, uh, that will be, that will be needed in our lives as those who desire to follow Christ. The first necessity that we find here is that, or, and the truth that we've learned in verse 49 to 53 about Jesus' present ministry is that Jesus came to cause division. When Jesus came, he causes division. Verse 49 53, look there with me. Jesus continues, I have come. Notice the, the past tense now, not that it's coming, but I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one's household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus came and says, we just read, as we read here, very clearly, he says, came to cast fire upon earth. This word terminology, casting fire, is a description of judgment. We see it for the first time back in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And there we read that uh, John the Baptist speaking these words at, at Jesus, uh, upon seeing Jesus. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John recognizes that Jesus would eventually baptize people with either the Holy Spirit or with fire. As he gathers the wheat into his barn... As he brings God's salvation, he grants them the Holy gift of the Holy Spirit. He will also, at one point, at some point, burn all the chaff with fire. Those who are not don't belong to him. Those who reject him, to judgment. And it's quite, it's quite strong to hear Jesus say these words: "I have come to cast fire upon the earth." Even the terminology, the word of fire falling down there has the idea of the destruction of Sodom and Gore, <clears throat> big fire uh, balls coming down. To a world today that is just so used to hearing of Christians simply speaking of Jesus as, a, as love, a man of love and grace and mercy, which he is, this is to hear that Jesus is also a man who, has, who brings wrath and judgment upon the world is striking. 
but it is so true. That's what he says. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. This is part of his mission for coming to the earth. Yes, he was sent to preach the kingdom of God, according to Luke 4.43. He's come to bring an offer of peace and salvation. But you and I know that not everyone receives that offer of peace, receives the offer of salvation. And so at the same time, Jesus' coming would also result in judgment. Just as someone would receive him, others would reject him. And yet, before the judgment, Jesus reveals that he has a baptism to undergo. This is a reference to his death upon the cross. To make a, to make a way of salva- for salvation from sin, Jesus would die for our sins. He would bear the full wrath of God upon sin. Verse 51 is also a bit jarring. Do you think that he came to bring peace on earth? Yes, of course. That's what many Israelites expected of him. Many expected the Messiah's coming to establish a kingdom of peace. And that kingdom will be established. It will be a kingdom of peace. It will be a kingdom of righteousness. But this was not the case at Jesus' first coming. He brought division instead. Choosing to follow Jesus will inevitably bring division, even among the closest-knit relationships of the family. It will divide between those who choose to follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus. This division between families could be seen as a picture of the inevitable judgment that will come at His second coming, when He, will, when he the Jesus, will permanently separate His disciples from those who are not. If you are going to follow Jesus, Jesus describes here that you must know that following Him will necessitate a separation from, of you from those who do not follow Him. Not a... Not in the sense that you don't love or interact with the world, that you, do, you we, are, we are to do that. But there was inevitable separation. There will, there will be eventually come a place where as you, in your relationship where you cannot go beyond the, the reality that you're just going two different directions. In verse 54 to 56, we see a second necessity because of Jesus' first coming. Not only does Jesus' coming, first coming cause his division, cause division, but Jesus' coming, first coming, calls for discernment in verses 54 and 56. Jesus calls for discernment. 54 and 56, we pick up. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Jesus now turns to address the crowds directly in verse 54. Are you interested in basically following Jesus? Then listen, he says, to what I'm saying. He calls those in the crowds who are listening to discern the signs of his, of, his, uh, of his ministry at that point. Remember, the crowds had demanded of Jesus a sign from heaven back in 11.16. And Jesus now kind of points out that you guys are completely missing the signs. He uses an illustration from the weather. Uh, from the weather. In those days, whenever one saw a, a, a cloud in the west, that is towards the Mediterranean Sea, coming from the Israelites knew that a rain shower was coming, and, and so it was. Similarly, whenever they felt a wind that was coming from the south, from the desert essentially, Israelites knew that it would be a hot day, and so it was. This was all common knowledge. The people had been able to discern and, and observe and look at the signs around them of the world and the earth and the sky and be able to figure out, oh, this is coming. When I see this, I know this is coming. When I see this, I know this is coming. In the parallel passage in Matthew 16, we, we get the very familiar phrase that is often said, red sky at night, sailors delight, but red sky at morn, sailors be warned. People know how to observe our world and, and be able to forecast what's going to happen next. 
A lot of people out there just make a lot of money just by looking at the different things that are happening in our world and making forecasts and, and speaking about that. Everyone knew how to read the weather signs. How could they not then see the signs that were performed right before them in the present ministry of Jesus? They completely ignored the signs. Jesus calls them, those, these who doubt, he calls the crowds hypocrites. They're those who miss the signs, not because they're ignorant, but simply because they refuse to examine them, to analyze them. The word analyze is, the word, uh, is a word from which we get to, uh, to, take a, to take a look at, to see if it is real, to see if it's true. But the reality is they see these signs, but they willfully reject it. The signs all point to Jesus as the Messiah. How could they not? Here, he's, he's healing people left and right. He's casting out demons left and right. He's raising people from the dead and saying, no, we want another sign from you. You're missing the signs. But if they would, if they would sincerely analyze the present time, the signs when Jesus walked on the earth, when the Son of God lived and breathed before them, they would see him. They would realize him, recognize him for who he is. But they didn't. They willfully didn't. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus calls them to discern the truths of who he is. Discern the signs. You and I know that we, can, we still discern the signs of our weather today, right? In fact, we've gotten much better at it. Our weather forecasters are able to forecast weather 10 days ahead. We have those 10-day forecasts. We have monthly for, month, forecasts months ahead even. And they're pretty accurate. I, man, I use them. Kind of like, oh, I want to know what's going to happen 10 days from now. The world can discern the weather with great accuracy. But it still fails to discern Jesus. Over the last 2,000 years, His Word has been preserved in this holy book and it has been proclaimed from these, these local gatherings we call churches. That's why they're so, so important to have churches because the churches proclaim the good news of the, Jesus Christ from this book. His church, furthermore, has grown as lives have been transformed His followers have spread across the world from beyond nations and beyond languages, beyond cultures, and countless, and what's more, countless numbers of these Christians have even been martyred and given their lives for their faith because they counted it a greater privilege to die for the faith than to deny the faith and live on earth. The world yet still does not want to examine the evidence, the signs that Jesus continue, or of Jesus that it continues to be made manifest in His book and in His church, in our world, because they don't want to acknowledge Him. Because the problem with Jesus is that if you take the time to examine Him, and if it is true, then you must answer to Him, then you must bow the knee to Him, then you must serve Him, and you can no longer live for yourselves. You can no longer live as if you're God, but you have to live that someone else is God. And not many of us want to do that. In fact, none of us want to do that on our own. We need God's help to open our eyes, to see and discern the truth. Be ready for the Master's come and His coming has caused us for discernment to examine the signs. Thirdly, Jesus' first coming results in another related necessity where Jesus calls for decision. Jesus calls for decision in verses 57 through 59. Look at the Word of God with me. Jesus continues, And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are do, going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. If we take these verses out of their context, 
it seems that Jesus is all of a sudden giving out legal advice. He's uh, talking about selling debts with someone who is owed money. But that is not likely the case. It's not considering where it is found within the context of this chapter, of the passage before as well as the passage after. And even remember when the man, when the, the whole discourse started when someone came and wanted him, his legal opinion to tell his brother to divide inheritance and Jesus refused. Jesus is not here to tell us how to, uh, to, to, uh, to give us legal advice. In its context, especially in context of discerning the time of Jesus' first coming, these words are basically another parable, a mini parable. It's an illustration. And in verse 57, basically, it's a call to make a right judgment about Jesus Christ. A, take a correct course of action. A decision needs to be made. Jesus wants to, you, you as the crowds or as the listeners to decide for yourself on your own initiative. Consider the signs and significance of Jesus' first coming and make a decision. Don't just sit on the signs. Don't just do nothing with this, with who Jesus is. Now let's take a look at this parable. Verse 58, 59, basically describe a parable of, of a courtroom. It's, the, it's a courtroom uh, that is a, basically a debtor's courtroom, uh, where uh, it's a civil court where he describes that you may be headed there because you owe some debt to someone. And you're going there with your opponent whom you owe a debt to. And Jesus exhorts us that on, on the way to court, before you even get there, he exhorts us to settle our debts with our opponent. Settle your debt with the one whom you owe. So that when you get there, the judge isn't going to just simply declare you guilty and throw you into prison, debtor's prison. And debtor's prison was basically where you had to stay until your debts were paid, but because you're inside the prison, there's no way for you to work and pay your debts. What usually happened is that you were beaten in prison so that eventually your family or people who know you, people who love you, care for you, might hurt and be out of compassion for you, pay your debts for you so that you can get out. In practice, going falling into debtor's prison was a prison that there was no way out of. You would spend the rest of your lives there. Because of the context of the previous verses, as well as the call to repentance in the past of the follow, Jesus' parable here, his story here, is describing the condition of all mankind. He describes us as those who are debtors, who owe in a debt. The debt, of course, is owed to God because we're sinners. When we think about uh, this word terminology, debt and use of sin, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we would forgive our debtors. We can't, the problem is we owe a debt of sin that we need to settle before we get to the, to the court, before we get to judgment. But the problem is we can't pay it off. We're paupers. We're spiritually bankrupt. And there's only one way to settle our debts. That is, if some, if we receive the payment for our debts from someone who has kids, who is able and has paid for them already. And that someone, of course, is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and came to live a perfect righteous life and then to die on the cross for our sins. Where upon the cross, all our sins were placed upon him. And where God poured out his wrath upon the sinless son of God. Who paid the penalty for the sins of sinful mankind. And we, therefore, because Jesus died in our place, we, through faith in Christ, receive payment for our debts. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Jesus died in our place. He took on the curse of, of, of the law, sin and law for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus uh, tells us He made Him, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God in Him. 
you're out there right now and you have never settled your debts with God. Jesus is saying here that before you get to the courthouse, before Jesus comes again, because of his first coming, because he's, someone has already paid your debts, that is Jesus, then be ready now by receiving and making a decision to receive the Christ's payment on your behalf. Place your faith in Christ, his death and resurrection for your, in your place, so that you might be ready when he comes. On this Pentecost Sunday, the words of Peter still resound for all to hear. Where he, wrote, where he is recorded by Luke in, in Acts 2, 38-39, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call himself. See, the promise of forgiveness of sins is readily available because of Jesus Christ. It's readily available for all of you who repent, who turn from sin and turn from your life of, of, of selfishness and sin and turn in faith into Jesus Christ. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he sent on the day of Pentecost. And this promise is for everyone in that day. For, the, everyone's, for, for their children and all who are far off, all who are far away in San Francisco, all who are far away around the world, everyone who's listening to this right now, Jesus offers for all of you, as many as the Lord our God will call himself. Is the Lord calling you to himself? Do you sense that, yes, this, the Spirit is convicting you and showing that this is true, that the coming of Jesus calls you to come to a decision and you're ready to make that decision today for Christ, then won't you then just simply let him know now and pray to him and ask him, Lord, I confess my sins. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I thank you for Jesus who died in my place and I receive the gift of salvation through faith in him. I put my faith in, in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus as my King and Savior and Lord. And as you pray that, you will receive forgiveness in you. The Spirit of God will dwell within you. How fitting today, if today is a salvation, that you would be saved and receive the Spirit on the day that we commemorate. Remember, Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. For all of us, as we conclude then, simply a couple questions for us to reflect upon. Are you ready for the Master's return? Are you ready? Will you be found ready when he comes again? And a couple of questions we can maybe think as is asking about in just uh, applications. How are you actively serving the Lord? If you're a servant, then how are you how are you serving with him? What are you doing? Are you are you ready? Are you waiting for him? Are you being found faithful? Are you being uh, faithful? At least the second question. What kind of steward are you? God has given you resources and gifts, spiritual gifts and, and talents and abilities, give you days of life. Are you faithful with these days? Are you faithful with what he's given you? Or are you unfaithful? Are you a wicked, lazy, or ignorant steward? And then, I don't want to assume it or presume it, by the way. You may become a believer. Say you think you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but maybe you've been a Christian. Maybe you've even been baptized, or you, maybe you've, been, uh, you've joined the members of the church. But in your mind, you come to realize, you know, I've never repented of my sins. I've never turned, in my mind, I've never turned away from sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. Well, I invite you to do that today. So that you will be ready for when the master returns. For he is coming again. Just as he's gone up, he will come again. And as we live in these days, as we endure the trial of shelter in place, as we may face persecution, suffering for Christ, 
let us be found faithful, ready about God's work, about the work of our master, so that when he returns, he will find us faithful and that we will be those slaves that are blessed of the Lord and where he will invite us to his table. Instead of serving him, he will take on the apron of his servant and serve us and feed us and provide for us a bounty in that future marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to those days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this reminder from Jesus. And help us, God, we pray, to be ready for his coming and return. Help us to be your servants, your stewards, who are active, ready, and willing to serve. And be found faithful with that which you've entrusted to us that we would care for the souls that you've brought into our lives, that we glorify you and be faithful in proclaiming this message that you, have provi- that you have revealed to us. Father, I also pray for those among us who are not yet believers, that they would consider your words this morning, that they would discern your ministry, and that they would come to a decision about Jesus Christ. They would place their faith in Him who died for their sins and debts. That today might be a day of salvation. Today might be the day that they receive the Holy Spirit whom you poured out abundantly, graciously, richly to your church on the day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for the, our, our day of worship. We pray that you would cause to be men and women filled with your spirit this week as we live for you, speaking and doing the things that honor and please and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.